Hello and welcome. It's another Books of the Year podcast. Thank you very much indeed for downloading us. Matt, again, is not here. Uh, This is because, as we explained last week, he's gone and got himself like a job. I mean, it seems to me an act of great selfishness. Uh, But not only is he working with his horses, he's actually not even on the phone this time. So we're going to try and get him in for the next Books of the Year. I mean, whether he turns up or not, uh, I don't know. Uh, change priorities is the phrase that comes to mind. Um, Neris, on this tweet to us at Books of the Year, lovely to hear from you all the time. Uh, Neris says, it was a tense couple of minutes with Matt on the phone in the last podcast. I was worried that was going to be a goodbye conversation. Now he's the head of horse whispering. Very pleased that it's not. He, he does. He whispers to horses. He's always loved horses and horsey people. And now he is one. Uh, and if he makes it to our next show, then he will definitely uh, be quizzed about it. Um, you can email us, uh, books of the year at yahoo.com, uh, tweet us and get in touch, please. Some reaction to uh, the Helen Russell happiness uh, book from last time. Uh, who's this? Uh, Jennifer. The happiness thing sounds very good. I'd really miss moaning about everything and I'm very good at it. <laughs> so, So that's the problem there. Can't really help you on that, I don't think, if you're a moaner by genetic disposition. Um, Pete says, um, yes, I mean, this made me very unhappy, this book by Helen Russell, the book on happiness, because partway through the interview, the author stated that her 40th was looming. Authors and people who accomplish things are absolutely not allowed to be younger than me. Hashtag need to get off my ass." book sounds great, by the way. Maybe I should move to Denmark. Thank you, Pete. A little bit extreme. Uh, Janet Stringer listened to you chatting to author Helen Russell about her book, The Atlas of Happiness, uh, on the Books of the Year podcast. They were discussing how some of the Finnish people get drunk in their pants at home. So Janet, actually, with that, she's just telling us things about ourselves, which, which we know. But thank you, Janet, who's presumably telling her followers. But that's exactly one of the things. I mean, there, there were lots of countries that we, you know, we, I feel as though we could follow by their example, but Finland wasn't one of them. Uh, in fact, here's a letter from Finland, from Timo Petman in Ulu in Finland. Uh, Simon and Co., I'm a Finn who has spent a year itching to correct UK podcasters regarding the definition of, uh, I, I learned how to say this for the for last show and I've forgotten. Anyway, it's Kalsarakanit is how it's written. Now that the term came up again in your informative discussion with Helen Russell, I need to confess that I've Kalsaranicked countless times, both alone and in company, but never in my underwear only. So Timo is one of the people who has got drunk in his underpants. The very heart of the term is the agreement that you are not going out in public so there is no need to look presentable and Finns can reach very high levels of unkemptness, believe me. Basically it's just about relaxing alone or with friends whilst enjoying somewhat cheaper store-bought alcohol. That said, Finland being the sauna country that it is, you often end up naked anyway. All right. So Timo, thank you very much indeed for the pronunciation. So it sounds as though Kalsarikonit, and sorry, I've forgotten how to pronounce it because I haven't got Helen's book uh, with it. Sounds a little bit more accessible than to the general audience. If all it is is kind of relaxing at home with alcohol with friends, uh, we don't have the saunas, but we kind of get the drift, uh, <laughs> as they say. Uh, Timo, thank you very much indeed. You can tweet us at Books of the Year, the email Books of the Year at yahoo.com. Uh, and Colin says, Brilliant podcast. Again, I don't know how this got through, but anyway, thank you, Colin. 
Wonderful interview, looking to move to Bhutan. Bhutan was the country where I think they introduced that, kind of, instead of the gross domestic product, they introduced the kind of unit of happiness to, to measure the success or otherwise of the country. Meanwhile, checking out the book and looking forward to the wittertainment moment, this is a film show that I do with Mark, um, telling us, Fieta Redast, the Icelandic feeling that all will be well. I think they thought of it first, actually, Colin, but yes, you're right, there is a certain uh, similarity to it. Thanks for all the correspondence. We love to hear from you. Uh, love to hear your suggestions uh, and uh, your thoughts about the programme. Uh, stand by, though, because we're about to give you, on this Books of the Year podcast, a book that I think will be one of the Books of the Year. OK, here comes our next book for you in our Books of the Year. And this one has been rumbling around uh, for a while. I first heard about this uh, last year. And the auction, I think there were seven publishers all scrabbling for this and the fact that the film rights had been snapped up very quickly. And there are always little moments that make you think, oh, OK, well, we need to, uh, we need to be on to that. The book is The Silent Patient. It's been written by Alex Michaelides. Hello, Alex. Hello, hi. How's your 2018 going so far? <laughs> uh, um, uh, 2019. Um, it's uh... it really 2019. <laughs> My goodness. Me. I signed a cheque just about an hour ago for 2018. Well, that's going to come back. That's funny, yeah. Okay, um, so it's 2019 already. Yeah. Okay, no, I'm going to pretend that was my actual question that I meant. How was your 2018? It's good that you asked that question because yes. my 2018 was was uh, was the best year of my life. I okay, think. so how's 2019 shaping up in comparison with the best year of your life? <laughs> I've started to write my second book, so it's a little more real than last year, possibly. Okay, just okay, just explain what happened because I think what happened to you last year is sort of what a lot of writers dream of happening to them just just explain the chronology of everything yeah it was it was it was like a sort of um i don't know what the right word is whirlwind or, or it was a dream uh i didn't even have an agent at that point I, you know i'd been a screenwriter and um i had a very kind of checkered career and uh i had always felt that i had some talent or, or, or some kind of facility for plot but never been able to marry it with anything deeper and i felt i couldn't really express myself i don't know um so i thought i'd try and write the book that i always wanted to write um, which was an Agatha Christie-style murder mystery psychological thriller. Um, and I sent three chapters to an agent um, that I found online. And a, a day later, he said, send me the whole book. And then two days after that, uh, he asked me to meet him and then signed me on. And then within a week, it went to auction. Um, so I was, suddenly I was going around to all these publishing houses and meeting all these incredible publishers. Um, and then... Book Scouts in the US got hold of it, and then it was it was um, preempted by uh, a US publishing company, and then um, it went to auction for the film rights. So then I had uh, movie producers calling me at midnight from LA trying to persuade me to. And these were producers in a lot of cases, you know, like major Oscar-winning producers that I had been trying to get meetings with for twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> they must have been that. Those moments must have been all the more enjoyable because you had gone through the. You know, I'm not really very good at this yeah. experience. Yeah, to yeah. To have people, you know, if if all, all this had come to you at the age of 21, you probably wouldn't have enjoyed it quite so much. I thought about that a lot. You know, I would think I would have been insufferable if it happened to me when I was 21. But I think 20 years of failure is really good for a person. Um, and I, you say failure, but you know, it's not when you kind of you just always easy to grow up. Um, and I, uh, I, I think if I'd, if it happened to me then, I wouldn't have appreciated it the way I do now. Yeah. So. Looking looking back on the screenwriting period, were you living in America? I was back and forth. Yeah, I was back there for I was there for a while. Yeah. So, what was it that you weren't getting right? Do you think what was it? What, 
why were you so frustrated with that? Well, there's two things. I think, you know, a friend of mine who's a critic uh, read the book and he said to me, you know, he sort of smiled and said, it's quite clear to me, Alex, that you're a, you're a novelist and not a dramatist, which is kind of the light bulb moment. Explain me. what he meant by that. He said that I was much better at getting inside somebody's head than sort of dramatizing a scene. And to be honest with you, when I was when I first started writing a book and I actually entered someone's head for the first time, it felt easy. And script writing, it always felt like pulling teeth. Um, and it felt I couldn't access any kind of depth and I didn't know why. And uh, So that was one thing. And the other thing was also that um, I think screenwriting or making films, you know, with the best will in the world, is it's so difficult because you've... You know, everything's by committee and, and the writer's the least important person. And ideas that you've spent, you know, years honing and writing get thrown out because there isn't the right location or, or they haven't got the money suddenly or, you know, everything changes and the best will in the world, everything goes wrong that can go wrong. Um, and so it's a miracle when films do work out, I think. Um, Might you have given up completely and become a bookseller or something? Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I'd, I'd studied psychotherapy and I'd, I volunteered working in a secure unit for two years because I had been very interested in um, in kind of psychology and uh, I had thought about giving up. Yeah, that's why I wrote the book. It was an attempt to try and, a last attempt to try and, and maybe that's why I suddenly was able to access some kind of depth because I, I was uh, I was no longer trying, you know. I was just given up. I thought, okay, I'm going to speak the truth now and just kind of be real for a second. So The Silent Patient, um, was it an idea that you'd been playing with for a while and just thought, put it on the back burner and just thought you'd come to it eventually? Or did you sit down and think, okay, I've had an idea for uh, a psychotherapist lead character? I mean, how, how, how did that work? Well, it's about a... A woman, a painter, who uh, shoots her husband and never speaks again. And it's told by the psychotherapist who's trying to get her talking again as well as sort of unravel the mystery of what happened the night she killed her husband. Um, and so there were two parts. There was this silent woman. Um, who is that, Alicia Berenson. Alicia Berenson, yeah. And that came to me uh, when I was 13. I, um, I Growing up in Cyprus, uh, you know, the way that Shakespeare is sort of prevalent here, um, over there you'll kind of ta- start being taught Homer at the age of, you know, 12 and Greek myths and the tragedies are constantly being performed. And, you know, um, so it's very much in the air. And I, I came across the myth of Alcestis and the play by Ripides when I was about 13. Um, and in that she dies for her husband. And then at the end of it, she's brought back to life by Heracles. And there's meant to be this kind of emotional reunion with her husband, Admetus, who's thrilled to see her. But she doesn't speak. Um, and she doesn't speak until the end of the play. She just leaves with him. And it's rarely performed because it's problematic, because people don't know what to make of this silence and exactly what it means. Um, uh, and for some reason, it haunted me. Um, and so I kind of was, that, had, that was one part of it. And then the other part was when I was working in this uh, secure unit, um, I didn't know I was going to write the book then. But, uh, you know, a few years later when I decided to write an Agatha Christie-style book, I, I thought, okay, I need an iconic location that's kind of enclosed. And I thought, oh, a psychiatric unit, I know about that. And then I'd been in individual therapy for about 10 years myself. And so I suddenly thought, oh, therapist. And then I kind of, then everything kind of clicked and came together. Okay, so, just just on the subject of the of the play, we'll come back to the secure unit in just a moment. This Greek myth of Alcestis is not a myth that I was familiar with. Okay. At all, do you? But from what you're saying, back home in Crete, everyone will know. They go, "Oh, it's that's that's." No, it's not. It's not particularly. I mean, it's no. known. It's known. My friends would know. He's called Alkistis in Greek. Um, but uh, it's it's a it's a very it's again it's an obscure one. Yeah, for sure. What do, and and in the play, you said it's not 
it's problematic because of the silence. What does the silence mean in the play? Well, you tell me. No one knows. I haven't seen it. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's a bit again, you know, it's sort of like, I, that's what I tried to touch on in the book. Is she, is she, uh, is she uh, silent because she's overcome with emotion of joy or is she deeply angry that her husband let her die and let her down like that? Um, uh, and, I, you know, I, I think that's always been of interest in me, kind of imagining that. And that, that's what brought the, the in the book, um, Alicia and her husband Gabriel was sort of based on the characters in the Greek, in the Greek myth. Okay, so Alicia is is your version of Alcestis. Of Alcestis. Yes. Yeah, originally the, the book was going to be called Alcestis, and I just thought well, no one's going to be able to pronounce that. So no. I'll call it the Silent Patients. I think, that, I think you made the right decision <laughs> there. You say it, it haunted you. Does mm. that mean you, you dreamt about it or you couldn't get it out of your head, or was it more disturbing than that? It haunted me. I tried very, I don't really, I still don't know why. I, I tried to. Um, to write it in various different forms so I, I tried writing it as a play um, I tried writing it as a short film um, I tried updating it um, as a short story um, and then something about I don't want to give too much away about the book but, but the moment I, I kind of got the idea of in the play it's death you know, and he's, not, he's sort of not personified and I thought what if death is a man with a gun who breaks in the house and then I thought oh, okay now it all starts to make sense. It sort of came alive in a modern sense for the for the novel, yeah. Okay. Uh, this is Books of the Year. We're talking to Alex Michaelides. His book is The Silent Patient, and we'll do more in just a second. It's the Books of the Year podcast, and Alex Michaelides has one of the most talked about books of 2019. It was talked about by some in 2018, which is obviously why I phrased it all at the beginning of the podcast. But here we are in 2019. Can you describe... Uh, the cover of this book, Alex, so that when people uh, go into their shop, they'll recognise it, or indeed their library. Yeah. Um, uh, the UK cover is, uh, it's a kind of a, a hallway, I would think, in a psychiatric unit, a kind of space like that, um, a medical hospital space with two chairs, um, two empty chairs. Um, and it's quite an evocative, haunting image, I think. I love the way you said the UK cover. Yeah, because because there's five hundred thousand. No, I'm joking. <laughs> well, it, it, it's sold into an in, incredible number of different territories, forty plus or something like that. Forty three so far, yeah. For, and there are forty three different covers. Yeah, it's going to be more or less. I mean, there's. I'm not sure. Some of them are using the US as a as a model, and some are using the UK. And what's covers. the US cover? Um, it's very interesting. It's a it's a very 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 faint woman's face that you can barely see um, on a piece of canvas. And where the mouth is, the canvas has been torn open. Um, it's quite disturbing. Which is a reference to the fact that Alicia Berenson was a painter. It was a painter, yeah, and also doesn't doesn't speak. So it's kind of the two two things in one. We haven't mentioned. Well, I did mention the psychotherapist. Tell us about the narrator of the book. Theo um, Theo Faber is a is a troubled psychotherapist um, who uh, is trying to heal his own emotional problems um, at the same time as. Uh, helping his patients in his care. Um, right, and he's troubled because I mean, obviously, if you if there's a point where you we can't answer that because you want yeah. people to read about them, <laughs> I'm just throwing the questions at you. So. Well, um, can I can I swear? You can, it's yeah. a podcast. Yeah, you can say anything you like. Uh, well, you know, so we, we, I think one of his first lines of the book is, "I became a psychotherapist because I was fucked up," um, and that's something I really believe. You know, that's why I I was drawn to therapy. Um, uh, as I started therapy when I was probably 18, 19 and I, I studied it at three different places and I, you know, I was in group therapy, individual therapy, all this kind of stuff um, because I was massively fucked up and um, and I b- would say that most people in mental health are drawn to it 
not necessarily because they, you know, they, they, they're screwed, screwed up, but, but they want to heal themselves on some level. And whether or not they're prepared to admit that or not is a whole different question. Um, and, and if I may, how did, how did that manifest itself? The fact that you were missing. Oh, God, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, how did it? Um, I mean, if we were hanging out with you in those days, would we have known it? Or was it, was it, was it obvious? Or was it just... I was, I was probably head? quite neurotic, quite depressed, um, anxious, very sad a lot of the time. Yeah, I definitely feel more joyous now than I used to. Um, but part of that's just growing up as well. Yeah. And, you know. so, you, you, so you went into therapy yourself? Mm-hmm. On a daily, on a weekly basis, uh, twice weekly, twice weekly, and did that help? Yeah, I was fortunate to have an amazing therapist um, who who did a great job with me. So how and so how much of the exchanges that we get in this book are sort of based on the conversations you had? Well, a lot of it. I mean, you know, so I I, I love I I love therapy and movies. And I love seeing it. I, I'd never felt that I had seen it represented in any way that was like a therapy session that I recognized as having been in, you know, even something like The Sopranos. I was just like, that's not like, you know, the therapy I've ever had. So all of the therapy sessions in the book, everything comes from me and my experience, yeah, of what it, I felt like. And also I was when I was working in the unit, I was constantly taking notes of my own emotional experience. Um, so what sort of work did you do when you were in the security? Well, it was an incredible place. It was called Northgate and it was um, it shut down now because of all the cuts they made. Um, but it had been running for about 40 years and it was a therapeutic community for teenagers. Um, and they aren't very cost-effective places to run because basically it means that it's something where the kids are taken in for three or four or five years um, and uh, everything is done as a group. So all the meals are together, all the decisions about their care are taken in a group. Um, they have a say in their treatment. Everyone's on a first-name basis. Um, and so you take kids out of very damaged, terrible environments and then you put them in this really functioning small village um, and it it was amazing seeing kids heal get healed and I, I you know it's funny because um at one point i remember a therapist i didn't like particularly there said to me that uh, that i was over identifying with the patients um so i can maybe answers your last question i think a lot of the the healing for me um was actually in the process of working with these troubled teenagers and connecting i was in my early 30s then with the teenage part of myself who'd been so screwed up at the same age you know you sound as though you were pretty good at this I loved it. I love if if it hadn't been shut down, I'd probably still be there. You know, I I, I loved them. Did the screenwriting come after this? No, the screenwriting came before and after this. But the um, uh, the 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 novel came out after this. Yeah, a good while after. C- certainly, anyone who reads uh, this book, when we're talking to therapists and when therapists are talking to each other and when they're talking to their patients, we know we're in the hands, I think, of someone who knows what they're talking about. Well, thank you. Um, and we feel sort of comfortable and secure. You know, the, the, the exchanges are real. You probably, having written screenplays and written this book, you, you know, you get a sense if dialogue is real in whatever context it is. You go, mm, not quite, I'm not quite sure I believe in that. But I think in this, from the first moment, we, can, we, we understand and, and we think, okay, this guy, this is probably what your agent felt when he read the first three chapters. You think, okay, I'm safe here. Good, I hope so, yeah. Here's someone who knows what he's doing. Um, so the, the, what's fascinating, So what's fascinating about this is that you've already told us that Theo Faber is troubled. And we know about Alicia Berenson, who he's trying to help. So the great thing is, is you've magnified the feeling which people sort of dawns on people as they read, as they go through the chapters, that we're not quite sure about anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Presumably, that's quite deliberate. Yes, well, again, because I'm operating, well, hopefully operating in, in Christie land. Um, and so it's two stories I'm trying to tell. You know, one is the apparent story of what we think the, uh, is going on, and then there's the real story under, underneath it, which is, I think, very satisfying. To If you can pull it off, it's a nice feeling. Tell us know. about the, how you went about writing the silence into The Silent Patient then, because you, you, you said in Alcestis that the sil- people are unsettled by mm-hmm. the silence, um, well, that's what I think people have, you know, it, it wasn't, it was written before the, the Me Too phenomenon. Um, but when I had a lot of female, particularly producers calling from LA, they all spoke about that. And they all th- said that they felt it was very current and relevant um, because it uses silence as a as a woman's only weapon when she's surrounded by men who are trying to imprison her. Um, and that was a very, that part of it was very much in my head. I thought, well, you know, she is. I, I, want, I purposely surrounded her with a lot of men um, at the at the unit that she's at, and uh, and her refusal to speak is a kind of weapon. Um, so it's a. It, it's also um, the producer who's going to make the movie said that what he one of the things he really likes about the novel is the negative space. Um, and I didn't understand what that meant for an awfully long time. No, I, I don't know what that is a negative space. Um, my interpretation of it is that he likes all the things that are unsaid, unspoken, the subtext, um, which again was part of it, was, was what, something I was kind of constantly trying to play with in the book, all the things that we don't say to each other. So when you look back now at what you've written, can you see the influence of the screenwriting course the, or the screenwriting that you that you were doing for all those years and like and you said you know it didn't work and you were unhappy and you were unsettled but can you see the influence now on constructing this plot yeah I have to give credit where it's due I um uh the last film I did was I co-wrote and it was a it was a comedy that went sort of disastrously wrong through no one's fault but the production was just a mess um and uh, I, Uma Thurman was in it, and um, I was every day on set with her every day, and we became good friends. And she, um, she, she taught me probably more about screenwriting um, and about writing in those you know few weeks of being with her than I'd learned at three years at film school. Um, and a lot of it was quite brutal. Um, she doesn't pull her punches, and it would say something like, you know, she'd scroll on the pages, NGE, it's not good enough, give it back to me. And then sat me down one day and said, you know, Alex, people can't just talk to each other like that, it doesn't work like that. Um, Every scene has to at least be an attempt at an iconic image, is the way she puts it. Um, okay, that's, in, that's it. So every scene has to be an attempt at an iconic image. Yeah. And so she, examples are, you know, one scene she was being held up at gunpoint and she was sitting in a chair and she said, well, why am I in a chair? Why, do, why am I not tied up in some kind of elaborate Japanese rope bondage? Um, she t- I told her about the, the silent patient and she said, what's Alicia doing the first time we meet her? And I said, well, she's just standing there. And Uma said, well, that's boring, Alex. Why can't she, you know, maybe she slit her wrists. Maybe she wants to die. And I thought, okay. And then she said, what well, does she do for a job? And I said, well, I don't know. Um, and she said, well, why doesn't she be a painter? If she doesn't speak, then she can communicate that way. The moment she said these things to me, suddenly, you know, it's like everything started coming alive in my imagination. And I rewrote the book from page one after that experience of working with her and tried to put into practice of everything, even if they're sitting in a in a therapy session, I just thought, okay, there has to be some kind of prop. There has to be some kind of image. So then I thought, okay, well, at least there's the tissues. Let's play with the tissues on the on the table. Let's try and so constantly. So I think it it saved my writing that experience really. So the book is should be dedicated to Uma Thurman. But I do thank her at the back. Yeah, but um, I think you should thank her at the back. <laughs> I probably should. I should probably just cross my name out at the front and just uh, write UT through it instead. Wow. So did you enjoy spending time 
with Alicia Berenson. She's the one who is silent for... She is a victim, and also at other stages in the book, we feel as though she's actually in control. She's obviously disturbed. Did you enjoy being with her? Yes, I did. Um, I, 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 I think I allowed myself to go a little bit nuts for a few weeks because I wrote the diary last, um, and so I... Uh, you just uh, explain how the diary... Yeah, so interspersed throughout the, the novel is um, excerpts from her diary that had been written before she murdered her husband in the month before, uh, two months before, I don't remember now. Um, and uh, I had, I, it took me about three, two or three years to write the novel, and until the very last few months, I just didn't write the diary. I couldn't face it. I just thought, I can't do this. I don't know how to do this. Um, and then I got to a place where I was, it was one summer and I was just walking around Hampstead Heath all the time with my phone, just making notes and just sort of became her in my head for three months. Um, I wrote it all down, but you know, this kind of links up to something you said earlier. So, um, this is the, the, this friend of mine who is a critic, he said that, uh, the screenwriting is about, um, contraction and novel writing is about expansion. Um, and that for writing the diary of Alicia was was something that clicked in my head because I, I I allowed myself to go into a rabbit hole with her. We're going to go on a walk with her on the heath and um, you know spend days thinking about her just her day to day movements and stuff like that. Which when if I were writing a screenplay, I wouldn't do. I'd be very conscious about getting onto the next plot point, moving the story along. Let's keep it going. But the the ability to kind of expand it, slow down, and really kind of luxuriate the minutiae of someone's life, I think it transformed me as a, as a writer. Really, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes people, Jilly, a very different genre. Jilly Cooper talks about you know, falling in love with your with with the heroes that she writes about. Did part of you fall in love with Alicia Berenson? Yes. Yeah, and her silence. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was a bit scared by her as well. I think. Did the, was there any point where the book scared you? Um. <laughs> I don't mean the implications <laughs> of it or whether yeah, it's going to yeah. work. Yeah, or right. Yeah, yeah. Am I any good? I just meant, was there any point? Because it's a, it's an unsettling book. Were there any times when you were unsettled? I had, uh, when when I first wrote it, um, the 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 only not, the only comments I had because I spent so long rewriting it from uh, the editors were that they felt the ending was slightly rushed, so they asked me to slow down and sort of really think about the ending again, um, and they were right. Um, and in order, and then when I did do that, I kind of really got into Theo's head towards the end, and that scared me. I think because I think I started to recognise. I think when you re- you really know you're, you're getting somewhere is when you recognise yourself, all the things that you don't want to admit to to anybody about yourself on the page that you've just somehow written out, you know, and I suddenly without intending to. Um, so I think what scared me about the book is myself, probably. Yeah. Was it in the end quite an easy decision to go with? A film company or a film producer? No, it was a really hard um, decision. Yeah, um, and there must be. And you don't have to answer this question. There must be moments, you know, in the middle of the night where you cast it in your head. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah. Okay. I did write it for an actress in mind, um, but I don't want to say her name because it might jinx it. But uh... does it rhyme with? Uma Wurman. <laughs> no, it doesn't actually. You mean it's not Uma Thurman? <laughs> if I was Uma Thurman, I'd be pretty annoyed about that. Um, She'd be great. She would be great. Uh, I think Alicia's a little too young, um, but she would. Oh, she, you can change it. It's Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So it's not Uma Thurman. No, no, it's not. Um, English? English, yeah. I'd like it to be English. I'd like um, them to be English and keep it English here. Um, but to be honest with you, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the film, but I wrote the book to 
to get away from films um, and to be a novelist because this experience of moving from the library to the cafe to the flat was the happiest creative experience I've ever had. Um, and so just the fact that I've been asked to write a second book is, is just wonderful. Really. So who gets to write the screenplay of The Silent Patient then? I'm doing it. Well, no, no, you yeah, can't because uh, you just said you're moving well, away from movies, so you well, don't want to do that. Well, I've taken the money, so I'm afraid I have to at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so that's bizarre, isn't it? So you've left the world of screenwriting, written a book, and now you're going to do the screenplay. Yeah, yeah. So the irony of all those producers calling me when that had been, when I'd, you know, written the book in order to get away from all of that was kind of mad. Oh, but uh, I think the producer that I am working with is extremely talented, much more talented than I am, and so I'm going to learn a lot from that experience. Um, and I don't have any pride anymore, so I'm quite happy to tear the whole book up and then put it together again and for a new medium. Um, so it's Do you think you can become a dramatist then? Yeah, that's what I'm ho- actually. It's funny you said that, Simon, because that's what I'm hoping is that I'm going to park my ego at the door and learn a lot from this, and maybe I'll make a good film. You know, 17th time lucky. Yeah, <laughs> my hunch is that it probably will. I hope, well, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, well, it's it's a barnstorming book and it's going to be one of the hits of the year. It's The Silent Patient by Alex Michaelides. What do we get from you next, Alex? Because you're already writing it. So if you're writing it now, then they'll want it for publication sort of early next year. I, I think so, yeah. yeah. Are you on target for that? Um, I've asked for a tiny extension. Um, I'm... Uh... It, it, it's hard to because it's purely a, a factor of just having being busy with book stuff now um, you know not having time it's a good so. excuse it's a good excuse it's, 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 I'd yeah. milk it for, for, yeah. okay. for okay. I'll keep, I'll keep and is it in the similar genre uh, it's a psychological thriller again yeah it is it's about a um, it's about a group therapist um, uh, who gets drawn into uh, investigating a series of uh, brutal murders at a Cambridge college okay so you're back to Cambridge then uh, Alex, uh, it's been great to meet you. Thank you very much indeed. I don't need to wish you all the best because it looks as though 2019 is going to be as exciting <laughs> as 2018. Let's hope so. Thanks for coming in. It's a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks to Alex Michaelides. Very thoughtful and witty and entertaining uh, book. And uh, we wish him all the best for this year of our Lord 1975. Uh, before we finish, an email from Daniel Woodrow, who's a head teacher of St. Gregory's CVC Primary School. Simon and Matt, you've, I don't know why Matt gets included because he hasn't turned up, but anyway, you've previously read out an email on your podcast with recommendations from our book club, and you kindly asked Dermot O'Leary about visiting our school for us when he appeared on your show. Uh, he couldn't visit, but he did send us some signed books. Always a good cop-out. So I appreciate I may be pushing things a bit with this third missive, but I wanted to tell you about something we're doing at school and to see if you and your listeners could help. To support Dementia Revolution, the charity of the year for the 2019 London Marathon, we're holding our own Goodwill Marathon at school where we carry out 26.2 acts of kindness for people with dementia and or people who care for them. We're not sure how to do the 0.2 bit as an act of kindness, but we're working on it. That obviously is a reference to the number of miles in a marathon. Audiobooks can really help support the quality of life for people with dementia, helping them enjoy stories when they can no longer read them themselves and providing a soothing sense of company in the room as well as acting as a portal for their reminiscences in some cases. Because of this, our children have decided to make an audiobook of their own to send to local care home and home carers as one of their acts of kindness. Rather than read a whole book, we have asked the children to choose the most exciting or well-written chapter, passage or few pages of their favourite book or a classic book to record. Staff and parents will also be taking part, so it'll be a real whole school community effort. And I was wondering if you or your listeners could share their own recommendations of what we could put 
in the audiobook, please. It doesn't have to be from a children's book, but we would love to hear ideas of passages from a book that are either really exciting or paint a beautifully vivid picture for us to include. Our Goodwill Marathon takes place in the week of Monday 11th of Feb and we're going to London to be part of the special 26.2 hour stand-up show that Mark Watson is doing for Dementia Revolution to tell everyone what we did on Thursday, Feb 28th. So thank you for taking the time to read this. On a personal note, thank you for the gift of so many podcasts over the Christmas period. Thank you for introducing me to Ben McIntyre's The Spy and the Traitor. Uh, the interview on your podcast was fascinating. I'm really enjoying the book. All of our podcasts are, of course, uh, still available. And if you want to hear the Ben McIntyre one, uh, then go to wherever you get your podcasts. And after you've finished reviewing us and giving us a five-star review, uh, you can check out the Ben McIntyre episode along with all the others. Uh, Daniel, uh, head teacher, thank you very much indeed. Um, and we'll take all those recommendations, key bits of, of great audiobooks that you think would make a really good contribution uh, to help their charity of the year. Uh, you can email uh, booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. Hilary Hansel, any chance you could ask Paul McCartney on to discuss his children's book, Hey Grand Dude, which is due out this September? Just a wee suggestion. So you've got a note of that. We'll better ask him. I mean, I'm sure he'll instantly say yes, he's a good man, and that sounds like a fascinating book. Hilary, thank you for tweeting us at Books of the Year. Thank you very much for all your correspondence. We're hoping Matt's going to be with us for the next one, but frankly, you never know.